here. Um, in spite of the difficult weather conditions, um, half of our institute is sick, so I'm really happy that you, you all managed to, to get here. Um, we are still waiting for one of our panelists, Franziska Brandner, um, but she is in the car and on her way here, so I promise you that she is with us soon. Um, in the meantime, maybe I say just a few words about our um, cooperation here, because we usually don't like to present reports that DGAP researchers um, haven't written on their own. So this is a, an exception, but we were um, convinced not only by the result, by the report, which you have all uh, hopefully in front of you or um, outside, but um, also by the very esteemed and um, great colleagues who wrote it or who participated in the process of um, writing it off, bringing this together. So um, I'm very happy, Ian, to hand over to you so you can say a few more words how um, this product kind of um, was produced and what brings you here to Berlin. Welcome to you. Well, Jana, thank you very much indeed. Um, let me start by saying thank you very much for a, a warm welcome to a cold Berlin. Um, for me, it's uh, an, a great pleasure to be here, and it's um, also a great pleasure to get away from Brexit London, um, where the weather, is, the weather is marginally warmer, but I think Donald Tusk is discovering today that the welcome is much, much less warm. Uh, anyway, we're very, very grateful to uh, DGAP for hosting us here. This is an important project, and I think it's taken on added importance, as we'll hear from some of our other speakers later on. Uh, I want to say thank you also to the Open Society Foundations for their support for the project. Uh, we couldn't have done this without them, um, so we're very grateful for that. And I want to thank, in her absence, the person who actually did most of the work on the report, uh, Jasna Schelik. Uh, who um, was then working for Transparency International, is now actually in London um, and unfortunately couldn't join us to, today, uh, but who put in an enormous amount of, of work into this project, into researching the legal aspects of it and talking to many, many European officials and member state officials and others, uh, trying to understand what could and couldn't be done within the European framework. Now, I mean, it's no secret that the origins of this project were in the concerns that many countries had about developments in Central and Eastern Europe, particularly in countries like Hungary and Poland. But one thing I want to underline is that the more we went into this project, the more we understood that there is nothing special about the rule of law problems that have arisen in Central and Eastern Europe. They are problems which could arise in many other places. And much depends on the outcome of elections and on the robustness of institutions. And we can see if we look across the Atlantic that even countries that pride themselves on robust institutions can find themselves at risk of all sorts of assaults on the rule of law. So as, as we went on, we saw that this was a project of much more general importance and interest than just uh, a few of the member states that had joined the EU from 2004 onwards. Uh, I, I think that's probably about as much as I want to say other than to say thank you very much to all of you for turning out this afternoon and I look forward to a, a lively and interesting discussion. Thank you. One of the charming things um, with presenting this report here in Berlin is, um, yeah, as I said, the great speakers um, um, which came, well, who came with the package. Um, so the first speaker is Carl Dolan, who is the director of Transparency International Europe, and he is going um, to give you kind of a short introduction and a short overview um, of the report for those of you who have, who have not managed to read it so far. So, Carl, if you would start with giving us a glimpse what is written in here. Yeah. Uh, yes, thank you, Jana, and thank you very much for um, 
for the invitation to be here today and also for making an exception uh, for us. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to feel exceptional. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't happen very often, I have to say. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I represent uh, Transparency International in, in Brussels. Transparency International is, of course, the uh, global civil society organization leading the fight against corruption around the world. And, of course, this, in, this issue of the rule of law is absolutely central for us in the sense that uh, it is the, the rule of law that is the bulwark against uh, systemic corruption. Uh, now, of course, when we first started our mission uh, 25 years ago, uh, and it is now a quarter of a century since Transparency International was set up, when we talked about uh, the absence of the rule of law or systematic corruption, we were mainly thinking of countries such as uh, Democratic Republic of Congo or other countries around in the developing world. But I have to say that we are, like others, very, very concerned about what's happening on our doorstep in, in Europe right now on these issues. Um, and to illustrate that, I think we only need to look at uh, some events that have happened just in the last month uh, here in Europe. Uh, we have had, uh, in the last week, we have had the uh, contract killing of a journalist in Slovakia, uh, partly because of his invest investigation of uh, allegations of corruption involving links between the Italian mafia and uh, political figures in Slovakia. Also in the last week, we have had um, the head of the anti-corruption agency, the independent anti-corruption agency in Romania, threatened with dismissal by the Minister for Justice, apparently for no other reason than spearheading probably the most successful anti-corruption drive in that country's history. And we have seen also in the last month proposals in Hungary for that civil society organizations would be threatened with a punitive 25% tax if they dare to advocate for fundamental rights for migrants. So, uh, and if we go back even further in recent history, there's the, the, the appalling murder of uh, Daphne Caruana Galizia in Malta, uh, and the unprecedented steps that the Commission has taken to discipline Poland over uh, issues to do with the independence of judiciary there. So everywhere you look, it seems that there is a wave of uh, attacks in Europe on institutions that are fundamental for upholding the rule of law, um, civil society, the media, judiciary, law enforcement agencies. And it seems very uh, clear that the political leadership in these countries are, seem unwilling or unable to do very much about it. Um, and that is, is, is the context in which we wrote our policy paper, which is uh, the policy paper that you have in, in, in front of you. So in terms of presenting uh, the content, I'll, I'll try and give a very brief synopsis of, of, of what we try to do here. Um, I think the starting point is to see the EU is not only a machine for economic integration, that, that's how it's generally seen, but it's also a, a machine or a process for converging on democratic standards. That is our understanding of the force of Article 2, the second article of the EU treaty, which uh, talks about the rule of law and fundamental rights. And it is also the reason why so much emphasis is put on uh, fundamental rights and the rule of law in the accession process, when uh, countries apply to become EU member states, uh, why these are now the, the issues that will hold up any other negotiations uh, as part of the, uh, the accession process. But what we see, have seen, of course, is that once countries become members of this club, once they become a made man, as it was once put to us, uh, the EU institutions have a very limited arsenal at their disposal to ensure that this process of convergence continues. And in fact, what we have seen is, is, is considerable backsliding on this issue. So it would be useful, I think, just to review just how limited and inadequate those instruments uh, are at the disposal of the Commission at the moment. So we have, of course, what are called in EU parlance uh, infringement proceedings. Um, these are essentially ways in which the European Commission can bring member states to the European Court of Justice. But this only applies to that body of uh, European law. Um, and breaches of, of EU law. It doesn't apply to issues that go beyond European law, like how you set up your judiciary, how you set up law enforcement, etc. Um, then, of course, uh, looking at the other end of the scale, we have the so-called Article 7 procedure. Uh, this was the procedure that was uh, first enshrined in the Amsterdam Treaty nearly 20 years ago, uh, where, which was expressly there to um, uh, address countries that would be um, that would not be uh, implementing the rule of law properly. Um, now, this uh, procedure has been called the nuclear option because the end of this process uh, is stripping a member state of its voting rights. It's, it's essentially almost like expelling a country from the EU, and it's been called the nuclear option because it's very unlikely. Uh, that you would go that far, and secondly, you need unanimity amongst member states in order to achieve 
that outcome. Now, it's called the nuclear option, although um, it seems like the nuclear option is in favor lots of places now, from North Korea to Brussels, and the, and the uh, European Commission has recently pressed the nuclear option uh, against Poland uh, by starting those proceedings uh, in December last year, although it's uh, very unlikely that we will actually see the final outcome, which is Poland stripped of its, uh, of its voting rights. Uh, finally, the, the, the other instrument at the uh, Commission's disposal, recognizing that uh, this uh, Article 7 procedure is unlikely to, to succeed, is uh, what they call the rule of law framework. And this is essentially just a, um, a, a dialogue with member states, a formal dialogue with member states, about concerns about the rule of law. And of course, dialogue is good, but what we have seen is that that process has just led to, in the Polish case, uh, opportunities for grandstanding by the, uh, the Polish government uh, and a war of words between Warsaw and Brussels, uh, which is actually, I think, just uh, aggravated tensions rather than than uh, decelerating those tensions. So very clearly what we need to do is we need to, we need to bolster this um, arsenal. We need, to, we need to rearm in terms of our rule of law instruments uh, in the EU. And the obvious place to start uh, with that is by looking at the EU funds, looking at the EU budget, that, that common uh, part of EU money. Um, and there's two reasons for looking at this. One, uh, the funding is, of course, one of the few areas where EU institutions have substantial leverage. Uh, over, over member states. Um, and secondly, and I think this is very important to emphasize, is that there is, is a clear economic rationale for uh, embedding rule of law conditionality in the use of EU funds. Uh, even if we only think narrowly about the objectives of those funds in terms of uh, achieving some kind of economic convergence uh, in, between member states and improving the investment climate uh, in those member states, that is unlikely to happen unless you have sound rule of law, and a predictable legal system, um, because that is the sort of thing that investors uh, demand if, they are, if, if, they are, if their investments are going to be protected and if these kind of investments are going to have uh, the desired effect. Uh, and actually, we see already that some uh, EU structural funds are used to, um, to, for training of the judiciary uh, and for, for used for uh, projects that will improve the rule of law in that country. So there's a clear reason, clear rationale why we would be looking at EU funds. And now this is the perfect time to speak about this and to talk about, and to talk about the topic in our report because uh, uh, as we speak, there are uh, discussions in Brussels going on about what the shape of the next EU budget will be like. The uh, Commission will be proposing something in May of this year um, and uh, conditionality around the EU budget will be uh, almost certainly part of that uh, proposal, maybe. Um, so, and it's also important thing to emphasize, I think, is that, uh, that the idea of attaching conditions to the distribution of EU funds uh, and suspension of those funds if those conditions are not fulfilled, um, these ideas are not new. So they first appeared uh, back in 2007 in the budget cycle before the current one. Uh, when there were conditions attached to the EU funds relating to the uh, Growth and Stability Pact. So essentially macroeconomic conditionality, uh, and that applied only to cohesion funds. So actually cohesion funds are, are, uh, are, are greatly sort of concentrated in, in Eastern Europe countries. In 2014, so in the current budget cycle, um, that macroeconomic conditionality was extended and it was attached to all EU investment and, and structural funds. And at the same time, uh, in 2014, the European Commission also attached uh, a number of, in the EU jargon, uh, ex-ante conditionalities to, um, to the funds. That meant things that had to be in place before the funds could start flowing. And it included uh, issues to do with uh, environmental legislation, uh, um, it, things to do with um, uh, uh, governance in some cases. Uh, and so there were many, many conditions which member states had to fulfill beyond the goal of those uh, individual investments uh, in order for the money to start flowing. So this whole idea of, of conditionality attached to EU funds is not in any way new. And given the clear link between the rule of law and economic development that I mentioned earlier, it's not a huge leap of the imagination to extend these conditionalities explicitly to the rule of law, to the independence of the judiciary, to having a free media, uh, action to prevent systemic corruption, etc., and to enshrine these in the 
the, the legal framework for the next EU budget. So uh, in, in, in the last one or two minutes uh, that remain to me let, me, let me just say very concretely what we are proposing. So in the paper, what we are saying is that periodically, uh, every seven years or ahead of every EU budget, there would be a, a, a fundamental assessment of the threat to the rule of law in every member state. And this is important. This is, would apply to every single member state in the EU. Uh, that assessment should be evidence-led, it should be independent, it should be credible, and it should be uh, something that is carried out by an institution that has all these hallmarks of independence and credibility. It could be the European Commission, if that's too political for some people's tastes. We, we have also suggested maybe the fundamental European Fundamental Rights Agency could be a body that would carry out this kind of periodic baseline threat assessment. Then, on the basis of that assessment, there are three possible outcomes. There may be some concerns about the rule of law in that country, uh, in which case uh, the response would be there could be an enhanced conditionality for that country. Um, maybe one example of that is that the country would be uh, forced to sign up to the European Public Prosecutor's Office. This is a, a body that has just been established by the EU institutions and will monitor uh, and investigate uh, crimes against the EU budget. Or there could be enhanced monitoring which would apply to that country. This is in the case of a limited or not so imminent threat to the rule of law. In the case of a major concern, this would be the second response, there could be, of course, suspension of the funds, or this is also very important, the funding could be rerouted through um, other agencies, uh, other European agencies like the European Commission or the European Investment Bank, so that the money still goes to the people, to the beneficiaries who it was intended for, but cannot be, uh, cannot be that, an income stream that is corrupted in some ways by uh, national level figures. And finally, uh, we also believe that there should be um, incentives for a positive inform a performance. So if the uh, assessment reveals that there has been a positive performance in terms of promoting and enhancing the rule of law, um, this is something that could be rewarded also out of the EU budget. So that's the bare bones of, of what we're, we're proposing and um, uh, much more detail in our paper, of course, uh, I'm very happy to discuss that later on. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carl. It's now my distinct pleasure to welcome Franziska Brandner, Member of Parliament um, of the Green Party and newly elected spokeswoman for European policy. And we are very, very happy to have you here despite your very uh, heavy schedule. Um, I know that you, it was very difficult for her, so we are particularly happy and I want to give you um, the chance to comment on everything you have heard, I mean, only the last five minutes, but this whole issue of conditionality and EU funds rule of law is something you are working on for quite a time. forever. So, <laughs> curious, what do you have to yeah. say? Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And it's just that we have a plenary session going on and votes, so that's why I, I was... Uh, um, and I'm uh, one of um, the parliamentarische Geschäftsführerin now, so I have to be there. I cannot just say, okay, see you later. So, <laughs> um, uh, and to guide them through the votes. Um, so, and we just voted for the members of the committee for the stabilization, the EU fund. So actually it was EU related, so I had to be there. <laughs> um, so, but I ha and I'm really glad that you're actually organizing this event because it's, of course, one of the questions uh, for the upcoming MFR. Um, so for me, the question, you, you know that I have been working on, the, on how we can sustain human rights and democracy in all EU member states after accession is one of the key questions I've been working on over the last few years. Um, and as you might remember, we have been introducing or proposing a, um, a sort of Copenhagen Commission, a bit different than that proposed by some academics. Um, uh, and the idea behind that is to say that you have a constitutional experts, um, one cent per member state uh, and proposed by each national member state's national parliament. So the Bundestag would send one representative to Assemblée Nationale, the same, etc. So you would have a body with a, the national experts sent and then 10 additional sent by the European uh, parliament. Um, and uh, if you do that, then you have a continuous monitoring uh, and you can have annual reports on all member states. That's what you said, what you actually would need for the fundamental rights agency. You would need um, a change of the mandate because so far it doesn't look at that. Um, so that, and also it would encounter the same 
um, yeah, critics uh, as uh, as the EU Commission, why them, who have who has selected them. So it would be very easy for the organs of this world in Kaczynski to criticize them just as much as the EU Commission. So we believe you need a body that has national ownership um, and is. Uh, yeah, and where they cannot just easily say who are the members of this committee. Um, so this is a bit the idea to have this Copenhagen Commission. And then, of course, comes the difficult question, what would be the exact criteria? Uh, because we don't have them written down. Article 2 is quite broad um, and it's not very precise. You can argue that in the accession process we make it quite precise. Yes, we do it there. Um, but we have never agreed internally that those uh, would be the same um, criteria to be uh, voted upon. So the question for me fundamentally, if you want to link it, uh, link EU funding to human rights and rule of law, what criteria do you base it on? It's the very first one you would have to agree on. Uh, it's not an easy one. There was just recently, a, I think, a very good uh, um, study commissioned by the Heinrich Böll Foundation, and they said the major criteria is if... Um, if majorities can be changed. Um, so if you do everything so that there cannot be an, another majority in the country, then this should trigger, etc. But there is, you know, large uh, judicial and uh, political debate about what the criteria should be. Um, and then the question is who should judge it um, and then who can act upon it. So I think this entire question of linking EU funds to rule of law is extremely difficult. We don't have a basis for it yet. And if you don't have a basis for it yet and you don't have a mechanism for it yet, it becomes very popular and maybe populist and it doesn't help in the countries concerned. Um, so, um, and of course, you might know uh, that the, the EU budget um, is controlled when it comes to financial um, regularity in terms of, uh, you know, you have made a public procurement call, etc., is of course controlled by the Commission and can be controlled by the European Parliament, but you don't control the substance in the meaning, uh, have they spent the money according to the goals of the cohesion fund, etc. That substantive control is with member states in Germany to the largest extent with the lender, and unfortunately, the Landtage and the regional chambers, etc., don't take that control very serious. They often complain about Brussels and wasting money, but actually it's them responsible for the check of, uh, this, uh, on how the money is spent. So you would, in addition, have um, to change that as well, so that the commission, etc., would be able to check on how the money is spent, etc. So what I think is much smarter is to say we go much more on commission going into where they actually have a say, which is the anti-corruption, um, and take that job serious. I think if the commission would already do that properly in all EU countries, member states, we would have a big change. Um, so for me, instead of, you know, Proposing something which for me is very unrealistic. Also, you need unanimity for the EU budget to be, you know, to come into place. And I don't see ever unanimity coming for such a proposal. Um, I think the already given powers to the EU Commission and the European Parliament um, in checking on corruption, etc., uh, that this should be really um, made um, much harder by the European Commission, and that they should see it as their duty. You can talk now about Slovakia, etc. So many of these cases involve, but also Hungary involve EU funds. Um, and then, uh, you know, this idea of uh, the COM goes directly and funds uh, projects in the given countries, that also needs a change of laws. Uh, so far, they are not allowed. The EU is not even allowed to give directly funding to municipalities. That was one of the big debates in the Greece um, case, where cities like Thessaloniki said, look, the Greek current government is so blocked, we can't get any funding through, etc. Why can't we apply directly for EU funds in Brussels? Why do we have to go through our Greek national government? Um, so the problem is that in such cases, the German government finds it wonderful to say the commission should go directly to Thessaloniki, but the problem is you can't change a law just for Greece. 
Um, and that would have meant Stuttgart can apply directly for funding uh, without a, a government in Baden-Württemberg or the Bundesregierung. So of course you wouldn't even get the support of the current German government to say the commission can fund directly municipalities. Um, and you can't make a rule of just saying it's just for those we like. So this option actually legally is uh, closed um, unless you, you can change it. But I don't think even you would have the German government support of it. I don't think in any kind of color combination they would vote and say, you know, leave us out completely. Um, so that's why, you know, I, I don't think how it, how it could go. Um, and I think if you talk about EU funds and the next MFR, uh, MFR coming, I would propose rather to say that a few countries can go ahead and create a separate, separate budget line within the EU budget um, for human rights defenders within EU member states and send a clear signal and saying, look, you know, um, if uh, you know, human rights organizations in Hungary have a hard time and you make blackmailing against George Soros, etc., we will defend those people and give them money. Um, and we will do it positively. We don't do sanctions negatively, but we have funding for those who are still standing up for freedom of press, for liberty, etc. And we establish procedures that could actually really protect them. For example, a witness protection program. We don't have a European witness protection program. Um, what if the situation gets worse in Hungary, Poland, etc., and people would like to come to the EU Commission and talk about corruption within their government, probably they would need a new identity somewhere else in Europe. We don't have any system for that yet. Um, so I would rather, you know, really down to earth, talk about what we can do realistically without changing laws where you need unanimity and where you don't get any government support. Um, and that could be done by a few going ahead and saying this is what we think is important and what the EU stands for. Um, so that would be my reaction to that proposal. Thank you. Thank you for this down-to-earth remarks. Um, well, I think we go into questions later, but first I have um, two other very um, distinguished speakers or commentators. Um, the first one is Heather Grabby. Heather is actually um, one of the women I admire most in the field. <laughs> She's working on rule of law questions also for a very long time. She's director of the Open Society European Policy Institute, and in that position, I think, sometimes under heavy attack. Um, so, Heather... So, yeah, oh, there we go. Great. Okay, great to see you all here. Um, and thanks to uh, the authors of this report and to Francisca for many very practical proposals. It's especially welcome um, sitting here in Berlin today before the um, Commission's budget proposal goes out and while the debate is still hot among the member states to think about these issues in the round and see how they're connected up. Um, it's, uh, it's especially important, I think, the, the practical points that Francisca made about how to do this. Um, there's an awful lot of abstract discussion in Brussels, where, where I work, um, at the moment about, about these issues. Um, and uh, we actually have to look very carefully at what's workable and, and how, what the implications might be. There can also be unintended consequences of, um, of uh, EU moves. Um, it's also, I think, very important um, to separate um, the issues of rule of law from the overall budget deal. The EU budget, if you look back at its history, is a very path-dependent um, uh, subject, um, and the decisions made about it are usually, usually happen through late-night deals between heads of state and government under enormous pressure, and they don't necessarily lead to a terribly rational allocation of resources. I mean, why else would we, we still be having 38% of the budget devoted to agriculture in 2020? Um, and so uh, it's, it's, it's a very important debate, debate to have now, how to restructure the EU budget. But frankly, the issues uh, regarding rule of law um, and fundamental freedoms in the EU can't wait for the outcome of that, that decision, and they can't be contingent on it, because it could go in, in a number of different directions. There are many um, factors in the budget politics, and rule of law is not going to be the topmost issue on the minds of, of heads of state and government in their, their last-minute wrangling. So I would argue that we really need parallel movement on these issues, a debate about the budget, but also, at the same time, 
another track on rule of law and values, on bringing Article 2 to life. As Francisca says, it's very broad, it's, it's not very precise. There is, in fact, an implicit acquis communautaire on Article 2 through um, the accession process. It's been spelled out over and over again in all kinds of documents that both the Commission and the Member States in the Council and European parliamentarians have put their names to. But bringing that together into one document that Member States would now sign up to for themselves uh, would be a lot harder. Um, I worked on uh, enlargement in the accession process as a, as a cheerleader of Central European um, accession uh, for 10 years and um, <laughs> from, from the academic side and from think tanks. And I argued over and over again that the Copenhagen criteria should apply to all of the existing member states, including Italy, France, the UK, you know, needs a written constitution, for example, things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I have quite a track record in arguing for this. But as Francisca says, politically, this is very difficult because Turkeys don't vote for Christmas. And I doubt there is a single member state where the Prime Minister feels totally and utterly secure that a Copenhagen conditions audit of his or her country's um, democratic functioning, uh, treatment of minorities, uh, gender equality and so on, uh, would lead to a, a beautiful report. Um, and so for that reason, it's, it's very important to try to bring out some of the implicit acquis, including in the case law of the European Court of Justice. But I think if we try and aim for something, a sort of equivalent of the Charter of fundamental rights across the whole range of Article 2, um, we could be waiting for a very long time. And, uh, you know, if budgets are hard to work out in the EU, treaty change is even worse. So, rather, it's really important to find a legal and political basis in what is there already. And there is actually a lot there, and that's why this report is so valuable, because it really points out, uh, it's, it's far from being um, uh, idealistic, it's, it's, it's really very much grounded in the reality of where we are now. Um, and I would just bring out um, uh, a few points um, in, in terms of how to move forward now. One thing is uh, particularly the externalities, the spillover effects of what is happening in some member states. Um, this is not just about problems of one-party capture of state institutions, important though that is, but this is something that doesn't just affect individual member states within their borders and their unfortunate citizens. It affects all member states because what is happening actually undermines the community of law across the whole EU. If one party can control to a significant extent the judiciary, the media and other institutions, then um, it's very hard for other member states to maintain mutual recognition of court decisions, um, automatic extradition through the common arrest warrant, for example. Um, businesses can't be sure of fair treatment in the country, um, it affects police cooperation, it affects the Schengen area, many other things. And uh, while that was, it's about one member state or even two, um, other member states have remained, I think, too complacent about the erosion of the community of law that's happening. Um, and it, it's very worrying, um, I think, for the, the principles like, like mutual recognition um, if this continues. So the spillover effects, the community of law are vital, and it's important that other member states, political leaders, speak out, but also business leaders. Um, there's the issues of the investment climate that Carl was talking about, but also things like enforcement of contract. Um, these are very fundamental issues for business leaders who at the moment are, are keeping rather quiet and I think they may need to, to say uh, um, uh, rather more. Um, second point is um, about the anti-corruption question. This is very important to citizens, um, again, not only in a few member states, but in all. Um, and the more stories there are about corruption in the use of EU funds, the less willingness there is from citizens to have an EU budget, um, to, to see money. It, it takes a lot of trust and faith to transfer taxpayers' money um, from Baden-Württemberg over uh, borders to, to other member states. Um, so yes, uh, there needs to be a focus on corruption in this, and corruption in funds. But the problem is that the, the EU system, as set up under the financial regulation after the Cresson affair, focuses far more on tracking each euro through the system than on whether it actually has the desired outcome, how, it, how exactly it affects, uh, affects um, not only the objectives um, set out in the cohesion funds, as Francisco was saying, but also um, whether it's actually uh, really in the public interest. The public interest and the public goods that are delivered through the, the structural funds are absolutely 
absolutely vital. What is this delivering for all European citizens? Um, and those, those um, are arguments that many politicians have been very reluctant to make. They've tended to go with either we are a net contributor or we are a net recipient rather than making the case across the board. So I would argue that Commissioner Oettinger needs to pay a lot of attention to that in May when he makes his proposal. And for that reason, he also needs to stress how the rules apply to all member states, including net contributors, um, because it's very important that any tying of um, any links between EU funds and conditionality on, on a whole range of factors um, really must um, not just hit the net recipients. It's got to apply to everyone. So that's where having positive incentives, additional pots of money really matter. Now, I'm very interested in the views of, of um, all of those who are following the debate in Germany about whether additional funds for migration would work. Would they have that, that effect? I think that's a very interesting point we could discuss today. But the net contributors um, must be involved. And um, in terms of um, putting out uh, more money, I would agree very much with Francisca about the point about civil society um, gaining funds. And of course, those have also been under attack. For example, the EEA grants managed by the Norwegian government um, were the first to be attacked before, um, uh, before um, other uh, forms of restriction on civil society funding um, in a number of member states, uh, particularly Hungary. But So the EEA grants, um, which are still up, up and running, um, are also something that the EU uh, needs to express its support for. Um, and finally, um, I just would like to just remind everybody of the stakes that are involved here. This is not only about one or two member states. This is not only about um, um, the, the problems uh, with democracy in those countries. It's about the community of law. But also, this is a big political fight. It's a really big political fight now with you know, two member states saying they're not going to abide by judgments of the European Court of Justice. That's a very big step to take. That's something that even Britain, with its long history of being the awkward partner and blocking things in the council and so on, the UK never said we will not abide by ECJ judgments. That's one of the reasons why the, the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice is such a contentious issue in Brexit. They never went that far. This is an entirely new territory. I would argue that uh, it could take the EU into a new form of flexible integration uh, based on non-compliance. I think the most dangerous form of, of differentiated integration would be um, unilateral declarations of independence from, from parts of EU law. Um, and so this political tussle, which has such high stakes, this will determine, um, it could go either one of two ways. So this is what we really have to reflect on now. Uh, it could go one of two ways. One could be an increase in EU-level scrutiny of governance in the member states, uh, with all the problems that, that, make, that, that come. If that is the outcome, that would be a very significant um, in, in terms of the history of European integration. But the only real alternative is a long-term decline in the whole consensus around the values underpinning democracy and the rule of law. So and those are the two options. There isn't a middle way. There isn't a, oh, let's you know, hope for the best and cross our fingers. There isn't a, oh, well, let's let elections take care of this. It's gone too far now. This is something that can't simply be swept under the carpet. And if we look at this fork in the road, those are the two roads that are facing us. And this is what all the political leaders now need to decide. Which road will they go down? Wow. My next, or oh, my last uh, speaker on this panel is my dear colleague Milan Nitsch. Milan is Senior Policy Fellow here at DJP, and he's particularly working on um, the Visegrad region, being himself a Slovak, um, but he has also a huge background in um, European policy. So um, I'm very curious to listen to what you have to say, Milan. And also, I am afraid I have to um, hold you a bit hostage um, for the region you are working for and give us maybe the perspective of the Visegrad region. Some of the countries there might be or might feel affected by this discussion in a particular way. Maybe you can shed some light in the debates there. Thank you. Thank you, Jana. I will try my best. I was afraid that you would mention that you would hold me hostage also for time. And this is something I will impose on myself, um, not only because I'm looking forward very much to our discussion, but also I'm mindful of the fact that we have been talking here in the panel for 45 minutes. And therefore, if you allow me, I will run through my five points and be ready to respond uh, to your questions or interests uh, and go more in depth in some of them. So my five points, five points are, First of all, in terms of uh, east-west divide that is there in the EU, I want to remind all of us that this is not only an Eastern European or Central Eastern European problem. Uh, this issue with rule of law and corruption is 
uh, an all-European issue, and maybe a global issue, you can even, even claim that. Second, I want to mention arguments of some of the governments mentioned and affected. Third, I want to say something briefly about Jan Kutsia case, the, the murder of investigative journalists in my own country and what tremors it has, uh, it has started so far, how it can really disrupt um, and undermine political stability in, in, in the country. Uh, fourth, I want to go through various views in Central and Eastern Europe on rule of law issues because the region is not unanimous on this. And while doing it, uh, I will go through some other uh, important discussions on the EU level um, in this period and the risk that these issues will be tied up. Rule of law, the budget, the negotiations, uh, Dublin revision, and uh, the tight schedule on the vote, final vote of, on migration issues uh, during the Bulgarian presidency. And if there is time, uh, I want to then also mention some high-profile investigation into uh, frauds with EU funds in Czech Republic and Hungary, and the increased attention it is having not only in those countries, but also in um, EU institutions. And I think this is an open challenge for setting up the rules differently in the new EU budget, which does not only involve rule of law, but also some simple but important measures to increase transparency of how these funds are, are disbursed and, uh, and, and spent. Okay, I already used two minutes, so. <laughs> East-West uh, divide. Before 2004 uh, and big bank enlargement, this was already a problem. Uh, huge corruption with EU funds in Greece or the massive institutional shortcomings there and in other southern uh, European country. Has it been dealt with enough? No, if, if it would have been the case, then uh, EU would have a toolbox how to deal with this. Or later on, uh, when, uh, when, this, when, when talking about rule of law issues, not the EU funds, um, Italy under Prime Minister Berlusconi um, had, was criticized for a dominant position of the Italian Prime Minister in the media market, but again, what could EU institutions do with it? And so on and so on, the list is long. My point here is, I think we, would, we, we are running a risk of thinking only about current problem uh, when, when discussing what should change and what should be solutions. I think we should be thinking about also potential tomorrow's problems. Um, and the, what, what this report gets right, I want to quote, is the fact that any mechanism devised to improve compliance with EU values and rule of law must be in principle applicable to all member states, not only poorer and newer ones, but also net payers. Just imagine if a net payer is a problem in the rule of law issue. You can have it tomorrow in Austria. If you look at face value of party platforms, the FPO party platform is now one of the most extremist parties in government in the EU. It, if you compare it with, uh, with the Fidesz party platform, Fidesz is not an extremist party. You can, you, can, you can say many things about Fidesz and the capture of the state and so on, but it's not an extremist party. FPO is an extremist party. Uh, if, uh, and, and Fidesz is a member of EPP, or in case of Polish governing party, ruling party is a member of the European Conservative and Reform Club, not of the you know, anti-EU extremist club in the European Parliament. That party is in government in Austria. I'm, I don't want to single out, again, uh, one member state, but it, the fact is that a new government in Austria has put ministers from this party in control of some important ministries. The price to pay of not giving them uh, justice ministry it was to give them all power ministries, for instance. Uh, or Denmark. Denmark and how, uh, how, how Denmark, Danish, successive Danish governments dealt with uh, asylum seekers and confiscated their, 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 their property and so on and so on is also uh, an important case. Um, second issue, some of the arguments of, of, of Poland and Hungary uh, that are raised in, 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 uh, when faced of, uh, with this criticism. I will quote uh, somebody very knowledgeable, Polish Minister of EU Affairs, Konrad Szymanski, or State Secretary for EU Affairs, Konrad Szymanski, who, um, who said to Financial Times uh, that it would cause enormous problems if Commission will try to uh, tie, uh, tie uh, to curb uh, country rights based on um, some of the problems with rule of law. 
or to quote him, uh, to quote exactly what he said, some of these measures discussed, which are still not on the table as a legal proposal, could lead to limitation of member states' rights guarded by EU treaty, which is not, which is not possible without the treaty change. Um, this would have huge consequences, and also it will not be accepted uh, by, by, by uh, it will not be passed by, by uh, EU, EU Council, so it's not realistic. Um, Hungarian ambassador to Germany is in the room, so I would invite him maybe to be more specific in some of other arguments that these countries have, but in principle, uh, second, another important argument is that uh, structural and investment funds are designed to reduce economic and social inequality in the EU. It's, in a way, a right of these countries that are eligible uh, for these funds to have access to them. One problem which is structural I also want to uh, acknowledge, and that is that the flow of EU funds to uh, Central and Eastern uh, European member states is enormous, and in proportion is higher than in case of Greece or Portugal. In, uh, in case of Hungary or Slovakia, it's several, it's three or four percentage of GDP some years. And also, if you look at public investment, this is 80 to 90% of pub, total public investment in a country in a given year. So I would say it's inevitable that you have corruption involved in such a huge amount of country um, because this is the largest chunk of money that these governments distribute. And their institutions on the national level define the rules and, uh, and also decide about, the, you know, about contracts. What, what, what the European Commission can do is, is then investigate or um, there, are, there are strict rules what they can follow. I think this part should be strengthened and I will come back to it in a minute when I will, when I will mention some, uh, anti, some investigations by anti-fraud agency OLAF. Now, um, Kutsia case in Slovakia is a is, is a very, very um, painful testimony that if you have a country that has a long history of EU funds being distributed in an, in an untransparent way to big construction works, there is a saying that you can hide various kick, kickbacks and, and, and corruption charges in the easiest in highway uh, contracts and so on because it's huge money involved. To, uh, to particular um, uh, construction companies in, in, in single large chunks. Now, if you have that problem which has been neglected, then this is a belated wake-up call then uh, that, that the, the, the biggest corruption is taking place there. It's very close to government. And, and, and unfortunately, investigative journalists and media are doing the work of police, which is constrained. Um, because police and investigators and uh, prosecutors in these countries are controlled by governments. Uh, we inherited um, from communism a very specific uh, system of prosecutors that are a Soviet system, that, that, are, that are part of actually Ministry of Justice structure. Um, and on Kutia case, maybe one more, one more, one more comment because the situation is evolving every day. Yesterday there was a demonstration and freezing temperatures in in, in, in Bratislava, and one of one one minister in government resigned in in protest. And it was not the one with suspicion on him, but it was the the guy who, with the reputation of being the strategist, uh, strategist, the best mind in 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 Mr. Fico's uh, smear party, uh, Minister of Culture Madaric, but. The, the comment I want to make on, on this, before Jana will remind me that I should, that I should stop, <laughs> is that there was already a, a, a big quarrel between Radicova government in 2010 and the successive uh, center-left Fico government. Radicova government tried to deal with, luck, with, with, with uh, corruption with EU funds by at least two things. One, um, cutting down uh, existing contracts on, on, on highways to such a, level, such a way that I think they, they, have, they have forced the same contractors to, uh, to sign contracts um, which were 
700 million EUs lo lower over seven years than, than previously. And second, they have, they have passed some measures uh, forcing state institutions to publish every single tender and contract uh, and, and, um, in an in, in in office of the government uh, web page. So it can be then easily find out what was awarded to whom. Um, but that was, there was big backtracking in my own country on this, on this transparency measures later to such an extent that now if you're an investigative journalist, you would have to be blind not to, not to dig into this. Uh, last but not least is this uh, risk, I think, of tying, uh, tying up these various uh, issues involving rule of law and corruption in new funds to other important big debates in Brussels now, including budget talks and, and migration and W revision. Um, views on rule of law issues are different among various governments in the region. Um, for instance, Slovenian Prime Minister uh, Miro Cerar was quoted saying that on a Polish case, Article 7, he would vote for, uh, for uh, follow, he would support the Commission. Slovak uh, uh, ministers were saying this is a tricky vote for us, we would like to abstain because what, what, what will be ruled against Poland can be misused then against other countries. Baltic countries are, they tend to, uh, to talk about this more uh, like their Nordic uh, partners in, in the Nordic countries. There is a risk that if, that, that if you tie all these things, an Italian government of, of today, uh, we'll see what happens after, after, after weekend elections, but Sandro Gozzi, Italian Europe Minister, said uh, repeatedly that uh, support, uh, that EU funds to countries which wire the rule of law or solidarity on migration should be tied up and should be conditioned specifically. Italy will, will push this. If you do this, too much pressure can create unity where unity is not there. This was the case where we discussed at uh, TEPS, I guess, last, uh, uh, last, last week. There is not currently unity on rule of law issues uh, in the region. There is not unity even on Dublin, except one thing, and that is relocation mechanism. As long as you trigger relocation mechanism and you, you put it on a qualified majority vote, you create unity in, in the bloc. Um, now, to conclude, I think uh, high-profile cases with anti-fraud uh, OLAF agency are now um, involving Prime Minister Babish in Czech Republic. This was, this is investigation which is preventing him from, uh, from creating a majority government with majority support because some parties don't want to enter a government uh, uh, headed by a prime minister which is under police investigation and which is also, I think, uh, which, which has been proved to be involved in a fraud with EU funds established by Olaf. And in Hungary, uh, um, son-in-law of Prime Minister Orban has been implicated in another case, um, which was investigated by Olaf, which is now discussed in the front pages in the, in the campaign uh, before elections, uh, April 8 elections, so I will not dig too much into it, but the big issue has been mentioned, and this is really last point, by, by head of uh, budgetary committee in the European Parliament, uh, saying the problem is what happens after Olaf publishes its report. There is no, okay. There is not, there is not much EU institutions can do, uh, I, I would think that maybe other member states through peer pressure can be involved, like Bundestag, European Committee, because Ingeborg Grable, that's Grasle. Grasle, Grasle. sorry, Grasle, Grasle, that's her name, uh, chairman of European Parliamentary uh, Budgets Committee, is demanding a follow-up to promises that has been made from Hungary on this issue and also on Metro for uh, case, and she is interesting not only because of being German but also being an EPP member, uh, where I think the political fa party families are very important on the EU level, and the patience of this country's CDU um, CSU coalition in Brussels is also one important factor. What can be done? Thank you.